Hello and welcome to Lively Fresh Takes, where industry pioneers share their stories and ideas, where a community of four thinkers comes together, and where you can find inspiration and insight into what's coming next in our ever-changing world. We have a really special series this month to support International Women's Day. We will be hearing the stories from a number of women in the industry. To quote my next guest, women don't need to be celebrated or empowered. They need to be the CEOs, the CCOs and CTOs. They need to be 50% of the room more often than not. They need to be able to come to work as their whole selves, making the workplaces better for everyone. They need to bring diversity of leadership because that drives better business results. This is a conversation I'm really excited about, and so I'd like to introduce Elle McCarthy, who you will see has a unique passion for her role in being an industry leader, celebrated by her recent induction into the AAF Hall of Achievement, a story that is vast and covers transformation across brands like Virgin, Ford, and DEA, as well as personally championing DEI in the industry. She's also achieved the biggest success, which is becoming a parent. So welcome, Elle. Hi, welcome, Elle. Welcome to the show. Really pleased to have you on board. Hi, Mike. Thank you so much for having me. It's been such a pleasure getting to know you over the last few weeks. We'd love to just kick things off about the personal journey. You know, you've you've had a a, a fantastic history, and so it'd just be good to like. How did you end up in San Francisco? You know, working for EA. You know, the, and and where did it all start? Yeah. Um, where did it all start? It's, uh, <laughs> it's always hard to know how far to go back, but um, I think for me, the moment that my career started was probably the moment that I dropped out of art school. Um, it was the first time I'd ever failed at anything. It was the first time I'd ever given up on anything. And I'd always said that I wanted to be a fine artist from when I was really small. It was you know what I used to do for fun. We didn't watch a lot of TV growing up. And um, so I spent hours just painting in my room. And I went to art school and I realized it wasn't for me. And the reason for that is that I was really interested in art and the history of art and um, you know more the sort of untold history of art, um, the history of art that isn't just the history of um, white men painting things for a lot of money or white men um, objectifying naked women. Uh, which is the other version of the history of art. But I was really interested in the way that visual media shaped perceptions and shaped society. And that was what I was excited by. And it was what I wanted to get involved in. And then I landed in art school um, in Camberwell. And I felt like everyone around me was there for a different reason. Um, And I, I didn't want to be there. And I I realized that at the time, the art market was really driven by um, the commercial galleries and the commercial galleries were driven by investors and and wealth. And, you know, now when you walk around a lot of galleries in the world, you can see the Sackler name and, um, uh, you know, that the association with opioids is known now. It wasn't then. Um, But it felt as though. This was an industry that, A, you had to sort of buy your way into or network your way into, and B, that um, the reach of fine art had become a lot more limited. And, um, you know, I was sort of 
unlucky enough and lucky enough to start my career properly in 2009. So obviously it's not great to start your career in a big financial crisis. And the people who probably do the best in a moment like that are really junior people because people need cheap labor and cheap capital. Um, (laughs) In a way that sort of that moment in the internet was um, probably the early origins of the creator economy as it has come to be today. And so where creativity could happen and play out to shape media and to shape society probably was the internet at the time um and i i wrote something for myself i wrote it on my resume then and and it's still the same language it's slightly tweaked but the same language that sits on my linkedin profile my resume um which is that you know i believe that um we can reconstruct capitalism for good and that media can be a vehicle to spread positive body images, positive norms, positive, authentic representation. And for too long, it's been used to do the opposite. At the time, um, media advertising was the most viewed creative medium in anyone's life, Um, not necessarily voluntarily. And we're beginning to move away from that with things like ad blockers and the decline of broadcast media. But Mm. it was, um, you know, sort of necessary evil. And I... Um, was like, well, maybe I can get involved in that industry and help shape it and help shape, shape culture and make it um, less a vehicle of the patriarchy, which I still kind of believe it is today uh, because capitalism still is, but I don't think it has to be long term. And so I came into the industry with a really strong sense of social purpose. And that was the beginning of many years um, in driving transformation on the agency side and now um, on the brand side and it's landed me in in California. Brilliant, brilliant. Well, look, we're going to certainly dive into some of those uh, exciting case studies. But first of all, I'd like to talk about the fact that you cover the importance of psychological safety in the workplace and your work in DEI. Um, Can you just share some kind of specific examples of how you've integrated these principles into your leadership style and and how those two things have come together? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, you know, I think later on we'll probably talk about some of the case studies of the work that I've driven, like the programs that I've run in DE&I on the agency side and on, on the brand side. But I think, you know, talking about psychological safety and leadership and how we lead teams and how we manage teams, there is so much... Um, there is so much sort of buzzword virtue signaling usage of the phrase psychological safety because we know that psychological safety is an important conduit to retention of talent and that you know who wouldn't want to say that they cultivate an environment of psychological safety but the truth is um, a lot of leaders will say that it's important to them and then act a different way. And a lot of companies, importantly, will encourage leaders and managers to um, drive psychological safety, but ultimately adhere to a different philosophy of workplace management. And I'm really interested in in this um, in the concept of scientific management and Taylorism, which is a sort of... Uh, takes us back to early 20th century and factory production lines and um, a white man called Taylor experimenting with productivity in factory production lines. Um, And he basically did a bunch of experiments where he would take a person and he would 
tell them that they needed to be more productive. So he'd give them higher goals on a factory production line um, in for certain times and like narrower windows for eating and bathroom breaks um, and force longer working hours. And he did a, he called it a scientific studies, again, early 20th century, um, where he said that you can raise productivity as a result of putting these scientific constraints around a person. And that has since been proven time and time and time and time and time again to not be true. And one of my favorite examples of a company that proved that was Nordstrom, um, whose founding employee handbook said, uh, the first rule of working at Nordstrom is use good judgment in all situations. For other rules, please follow the first rule. And that was you know, so ahead of its time. <laughs> and through demonstrating that level of yeah. trust in employees, the employees were like, well, I need to use good judgment. And so they became known for the most exceptional customer service before we had MPS scores and all of that, um, because Nordstrom employees famously would go above and beyond for the customers. And so the customers returned and it created a, a human value, a human capital value that you cannot replicate with the, taking a, a Tayloric um, approach. So time and time again, this theory of Taylorism has been disproved. However, most corporate businesses, if you really look at how they treat their employees, like the example of Amazon, like clocking in, clocking out, um, how we review talent, how we speak to talent, uh, how we set deadlines, whether we're checking in on how resourced somebody is, um, all of it comes back to Taylorism. And for me, there's this really interesting thing in you know, Taylorism is about extrinsic motivation. It's basically stick, right? And what Nordstrom created mm. was intrinsic motivation. But the way that they created mm. it is through trust. So for me, psychological safety has become a buzzword. But what I'm really interested in are high trust environments. And my observation is that in most corporate businesses, because we follow the uh, capitalist cycle of selling in quarters, it's really difficult for leaders and for managers to get away from wanting to drive extrinsic motivation because it's how they feel. Because ultimately, quarterly earnings reports are extrinsic scientific principle motivation on the CEO. And if the CEO feels under that pressure, I've got to deliver every quarter for the shareholders, for the investors, then either they hold that to themselves and they're able to perpetuate a feeling of intrinsic motivation culturally through their organization, or that's modeled from the top down and it just continues to perpetuate because um, culture eats strategy for breakfast and I always like to say finance eats strategy for lunch and so when you're held accountable <laughs> to these financial cycles you end up in this Tayloric mindset and so for me as a leader the way that I personally model it is how do you create a high trust environment and it's really really hard you have to model both trust in your employees but also vulnerability which means that you have to apologize when you do something wrong you have to be accountable and you have to be available and I know so much about what it takes to build trust but I can also tell you that I completely mess it up 
at, like in a very obvious and visible way at one point in in my career within the last two years and it was when I fell pregnant and um at the same time I had a really really difficult pregnancy and the, in this moment I almost um I almost lost my baby so I was on a work call and I started bleeding profusely and I had to rush to the hospital and I didn't know if it was going to be okay and I didn't know if it was going to be okay for quite a long time and during that time I showed up really badly to my team at work because I didn't trust myself I didn't trust my body and that culture model from the top I stopped behaving like I intrinsically trusted my team and it pulled back their intrinsic motivation. And I, I know that there were a few moments where I really didn't show up to my best self. Um, but I had this really incredible moment later on because the way that I handled it was, you know, it continued for a while. And then that moment in my pregnancy was over and I really did some soul searching and some self-assessment and I apologized. I openly mm. apologized in mm. the open town hall forum. My whole team, I said, look, I just would really like to say, I don't think I've been showing up as my best self. I think we have to model the things that we say are important. It's why I've always modeled taking vacation in America where that's not really modeled. And I, I don't think I was modeling a high trust environment and I'm really, really sorry. And if anyone would like to talk to me about it personally, if I've hurt anyone in any way, I'd really love the opportunity to recover that trust. And we got to a great place in the team and we, we had been in a great place before. We got to a great place again. We were also under a huge amount of pressure during that moment. Um, and then there was this moment where I was going out on maternity leave and I um, had the fortune of bringing a strategist with me from my previous role. I hired her quite quickly after I started in that one. And so I knew her really well. She'd worked for me and with me for like four, four and a half years. And I said to her, look, Julie, like I am really sorry about that moment. And um, I, I'd love your point of view on where the team is at and whether I've been able to regain any of that trust because it takes a really long time to build trust and it takes a second to lose yeah. it. And I'm very aware of that. And she said to me, you know what, Elle, that was a really hard time. And you're right, you really didn't show up as your best self. Um, but for, for those of us who were there then, we know you and we know who you are. And so we knew that that was you not showing up as your best self. And it did take a moment for that to recover, but I think we're in a really good spot now. Mm. And, you know, she, she gave me some other honest feedback and the, the, other team, the other team members gave me honest feedback too. And I realized that it is such a honor and a privilege to get that feedback, especially mm. when you've done things the way that you wouldn't do them again. Um, and I think it's really important to, to say that because, um, like I said, I've talked about the big principles of psychological safety, trust and intrinsic motivation. But on an individual level, it's that trust in others that can only really come from that trust in yourself and modeling the vulnerability that will get you there. And I think that we tend to, especially again in America, talk about the good things and not so much talk about the bad things. And you aren't modeling vulnerability if you can't talk about the bad things. So I think it's really important to you know, be on a podcast like this um, mm. about me and my leadership and say, you know, there's been times where I've really gotten it wrong. Yeah, that, I, I really appreciate your honesty there. And it also kind of rings true because... 
it's quite interesting, yeah, because we've only met virtually. Yeah, I'm, I'm a six foot six man that has, you know, led agencies. And, and I must admit, you know, like I've, I've learned how important it is, just like you said, to have that honesty because I'm, you know, I'm very passionate about what, what I do. Um, but unfortunately, sometimes that can turn into emotion and channeling that emotion and how that emotion is perceived can you know can have positive impacts and negative impacts and so uh, but i was very fortunate in my previous agency um, to have a fantastic female partner who basically was everybody said she was my yin we were yin and yang and like people were like how the hell we worked together for like 17 years and everybody was like, how have you managed to work together? Because you're so opposite. But she, we both managed to to help each other through those situations. You know, I've talked to you in a previous conversation, but she's the one that like turned around to me and said, you need to go and get some business coaching, you know, because, you know, you're, for me, I get your emotions and I get your passion, but a lot of other people don't. And you really need to learn how to communicate that. And to your point, it's a constant thing, isn't it? It's um, um, it's a bit like not to get, to, but I've just uh, I've just somebody started me on yoga, and that constant like having to remind yourself to relax is key within yoga, isn't it? And and the same thing with business is you can get like I do, I get very overexcited about so many things, but then that can then lead to frustration as well. So I think that's such a powerful message and such a a key learning and, and honesty is really important in this day and age, isn't it? Yeah, it absolutely is. Look, you, this segues into a question I was going to bring up later, but I think it's relevant for now is you, you've mentioned and you've just been very honor, honest and vulnerable in your kind of public editorial. And why is that so important to you and for us to really understand in our own personal development? Yeah. Um... Well, the answer to that is kind of even bigger than just the writing piece. Um, sure. And it's something that I've been thinking about a lot recently. So I think I've, I've realized over the years that I sit on the more radical side of the spectrum when it comes to thinking about change and when it comes to thinking about um, you know, systemic oppression, but also systemic overhaul. You know, I, I think a lot about the solution. I think people who care about this kind of thing, um, there's a dangerous habit of admiring the problem or actually sort of perpetuating outrage around a problem that isn't as solutions oriented. It can be alienating to people who feel like they might be perpetuating the problem but don't know or just don't understand it yet. And um, anyway, it's you know it's a sort of lifelong pursuit to engage in these subjects and to do it with a pragmatic solutions-oriented approach. Um, so in my writing and in my work, I've done things like written about very senior leaders and the allegations that they used company money to pay for prostitution um, in a moment where there was a big expose on the President's Supper Club. You know, I, I wrote about that moment in time and how some of the press responses from these big companies um, were pretty euphemistic. You know, they said things like um, 
certainly no one from the company saw anything of the kind. But if it did happen, it was very unfortunate. About a a men-only dinner that famously had escorts greet the men at the door and then be there um, throughout the the course of the evening. And I, I wrote about that and I called out senior figures. When I was, I think I was 25, 26, you know, I was not well established in my career. Um, I had record LinkedIn views from the companies the next day. And my friend, my friend who also worked in the industry said, mate, would not want my name on that article. Uh, You know, you're probably blacklisted from and then, you know, insert holding company here. And I said, yeah. Well, they're blacklisted from my career too, and that yeah, was yeah, that certainly. was a problem at the time. Um, it's important to me because that so many people who think like me and um, want to create change like I do end up having to leave corporate business, and I've been given the signal heavily many times that people expect me to do that too. Um, I can give you, there are examples of being in the final stage of a job process, having even signed a contract and then being asked to come in to meet the CEO and the CEO basically saying he was going to take away the contract and then citing the name of somebody who had um, previously been very abusive towards me when I was very junior in my career and who I had called out. Um, so things like that happened. And, you know, my mum my always said, it's a small world, it's a small industry, you can't afford to make enemies. I think your career will be much harder if you're willing to stand up for what's right. And there will be moments where you don't get to do things that you should be allowed to do. However, if people like me don't stay rather than going to a slightly adjacent space and creating something like the 3% conference, which is incredible, or the female quotient, which is incredible, um, Mm. or being one of these incredible um, people who work for themselves and are on the more radical side of things and are trying to create change, but from the outside. If we all leave, change won't happen. And so I've been willing to put my career on the line, to write about things, to call people out, to speak up when I see it. It has hurt me. And Mm. I've only recovered from that stronger and more determined. And I I spoke on a panel on Monday and I said, you know, my commitment is to stay. I'm going to stay in corporate business. I'm going to model a different way of doing things. I'm going to become a CMO and then I'm going to become a CEO And I'm going to be a CEO willing to do that thing I talked about before, which is to take the pressure of having to deliver in the quarter, hold that for myself and trust the people below me and be willing to make trade-offs to drive proper equity and diversity programs into the business, not to virtue signal, to publish and be accountable to them, to tell people, you know what, you have to wait an additional two weeks to have a diverse candidate slate because diversity equals profit. You know, there's a reason why the W fund, like women-led CEO funds, outperform the S&P 500. Like this is not like nice it's it's not about being nice. It's about driving profit. It's mm. about changing the world. And I'm going to stay in corporate business, which is going to be hard. You know, not all corporate businesses are going to want me, but I'm going to stay. And so the writing piece and like how I'm committed to driving my career forward and not assimilating, not conforming to these new expectations that increasingly 
the pressure is to, you know, to behave in a different way. And we say all the time that we expect um, executives in companies to behave like owners. And that can mean to not call out problems. And I'm like, no, behaving like an Mm. owner means being willing to create the change that is necessary to protect the business's future. Because remember as well, the first minority white generation has already been born in the US. Again, like Mm. the consumer is diverse it's not nice to have and so the creators have to be diverse because you can't serve a diverse audience if you don't have diversity in your business um so yeah my commitment to writing and staying is is all about being willing to put myself on the line and model a different way of getting senior in your career and not letting the setbacks stop me that's brilliant that's amazing and and the thing is it's so it's so right for now in the fact that God, just hearing you talk then makes me look back at some of the things I've done and, you know, the decisions I've made that have been because of um, corporate pressure, you know, running my own business, that hitting that bottom line, hitting that target. And, and it's funny. I've, I, I can honestly say, you know, I've made some decisions because of those pressures and I've thought, I've got to move forward with that decision because it has to happen now. And sure enough, six months later, I've regretted making that decision. And and how silly it is to have been put in, put yourself in as a CEO, put yourself into that thing of responsibility and think you're making the right decision. And I can, I can, I know I've said it to myself, going, you're you're making a business decision. You know, you you've got to think about the bottom line that's justifying why you're going to make this move now. And that's so bad because I, I remember the, the, the excitement of actually when I set up my own business, I remember turning down my first client because I didn't like the way that project and my team had been treated. And the, pr- the pride I felt of going, you know, actually I don't want to work with you. Um, and that was really exciting. That was like, oh, this is why I'm running my own business. This is why, you know, but the, the longer I've gone through my career and the, the bigger the pressures, the more, the easier actually it is to forget why, you know, why it's important to have those sort of, um, have that DNA in the way you want to work. So yeah, kind of to recheck myself, I think, um, and so, look, I, I really want to get into the kind of the projects because you, you've worked in some really exciting things. But just finishing off on that kind of philosophy, you, you, there was a great line I, I read that you wrote about um, having this philosophy of punk rock and progress. And and I think that's kind of ties into what you've actually just been talking about. But it, it's, again, that's kind of, you know, very expir- inspiring and and kind of gives you some creative energy, doesn't it? Well, how have you kind of modeled that? Well, I'm, <laughs> the reason that I uh, used that language is because my first job was in Camden Market in basically a punk rock uh, store when I was 15, Brilliant. which is also, you know, I had to like pretend to be 16 to, to get the job. Um, and I also um, used to dance, um, I had a career as a, dan- a dancer 
um, and danced a bit in a, a punk rock club and, um, you know, grew up in Camden. And so it was, it, it made sense for me. But I think that um, that sort of philosophy and that mindset is is something that I also take from having friends who do really different kinds of things from the work that I do. Um, mm-hmm. And one example is my friend, Rosa Rankin G, who's a brilliant writer and author and activist. And I've been sort of lucky enough to, I was lucky enough to be recruited by her to help support her in a activist campaign that she ran around Brexit called Operation Croissant. And this is a sort of really fun, but really insightful solution to the binary hate that was happening in the UK around Brexit. Because her solution was, and she lived in Paris for many years, she um, went and worked with a bakery to get loads of croissants. And then also, my grandmother will kill me. Sorry, I'm half French. Croissant. When I say it the American way, because that's what I have to say to order it, she, she, she shouted at me the other day. So, Grandma, if you're listening. Um, so they send over this massive load of croissants and um, postcards that were a riff on the Magritte painting, Ceci n'est pas un pipe. Um, and instead they said, Ceci n'est pas un croissant, uh, which means this is not a croissant, and have a, a painting of a little croissant. And they were postcards. And so she held these sort of literary salons in Paris and she asked French people to write love letters across the channel, essentially saying, don't leave us, and trying to change people's minds. So individual, handwritten, mind-changing wow. postcards. And she'd uh, put out the um, awareness to the BBC World Service and a couple of other publications. And um, she asked her friends if we could come and like, wear T-shirts saying Operation Croissant, like, distribute the croissants and the postcards around St Pancras Station, which was a really smart move because that's also where The Guardian is based. And um, so we, we were there. And the anti-terrorist department of police showed up uh, because there is something written into the law that says that it's it's called the anti-treating law, and it's literally from like the 1500s because it says no one will take to the streets to distribute sweet meats or uh, mead in the run-up to an election. It literally says sweet meats. I'm not sure if it says mead, but there was something about alcohol um, because of this con- concept that we were like bribing an electoral outcome. Like someone would change their vote because they ate a croissant rather than... And so what was brilliant there was that the oh BBC World Service was there. And they kept, like, these yeah. big men came with like big guns. And there was like 10 women with T-shirts and, and postcards like, hi! Um, which meant that her, her activist campaign went viral because the fact yeah. that the police showed up was like just so ludicrous. And to get around it, it was really easy. We were like, fine, we'll give the croissants away. So we just went and gave them to a charity and then we distributed the postcards and um, people were like, no, 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 like, I'm, I'm definitely voting for Brexit. And, and we said, well, this isn't, we were like nowhere as well with the police. Nowhere does it say Brexit on a post, it doesn't say Brexit on a postcard, it doesn't say Brexit on a t-shirt. This is just a love letter from France to England. And so people who initially were like, I don't want to engage, actually some of them, did read the postcards, the individual experience of seeing people be moved by something that was not a binary message 
it was about yeah. love. It was about, yeah. and um, it went viral. It trended on Twitter and Facebook for like 24 hours and um, hit almost every major international news outlet. And it's all, you know, it's Rosa's work. I help with the social media side of things. Um, but it was Rosa and her friend driving the PR. But it was that spirit. And mm. later on in the advertising me to moment, um, when Hollywood had all of these moments of the, the female actresses showing up wearing black on stage, um, and the Cannes Festival was um, going to be quite soon. And we know famously there is a bad history at Cannes. Like very senior men in advertising would show up again with escorts. Like that was just completely part of what was expected. Not a lot of women were invited. There were very few women on stage. The women who were invited were often the administrative assistants. We know that people were hiring often for looks with administrative assistants and that they were some of the most abused people from the perspective of sexual harassment, sexual assault in, in the advertising industry. The amount of bad stories I've heard just on, you know below the radar, hush hush, that have come from Cannes. And I was like, we need our moment. Like that, This is the red carpet. Um, but I wasn't going to camp and because I, you know, I was only a senior woman in the advertising industry, why would I go? Um, and so me and my, me and my husband were like, let's do something. So I drew a lioness head on a napkin and he was like, actually, that's quite good. And he's got Photoshop skills. So he Photoshopped it into, uh, something that looked like the can lion, but as a lioness. And we just started the hashtag women can. And we called all of our friends in like the more sort of feminist um, feminist outfits that were going. So 3% conference and the others. And I also called um, some contacts at Adweek and I said, look, I can't do this as me because I'm at an agency right now. And so either I'd get fired or it would be perceived to be from the agency. And I don't want this to be an agency idea because that's going to look cynically motivated. And I, I just want this to be pure, which means I need to do it anonymously. But, um, you know, at the time, the women who were um, driving Madison Avenue manslaughter, like that was very controversial because they were, you know, telling stories about things that remained alleged. We know that most alleged stories are true and do not get convicted. They settle. NDAs are a big problem. There's a lot of unionizing happening around that now, like, there is so much to unpick here to get any kind of justice in, in the world of sexual harassment. And, you know, it's perpetuated by number of rape convictions actually being brought forward. It's, it's awful. Um, but I said, look, I need to be anonymous, but you know, I'm not going to use that anonymity in any way other than to just like not put a face to this movement. I just want women to wear black. I want people to use the hashtag and I want to distribute a thousand temporary tattoos at the Cannes Festival. So I had these um, people at like 3% had it in their spaces, just like the little movement and then the tattoos. And so they wrote this story about this vigilante pack of lionesses at the festival. And the truth is it was me and my husband at a kitchen table in like sweaty, sweaty New York summer with no <laughs> air conditioning, um, putting temporary tattoos into big envelopes and just shipping them to our friends. And we weren't even there. Um, but lots of women did wear black on stage, including uh, Lorraine Tuhill from Google. And someone told me that she was aware of the movement. And that's why you know, I haven't heard that from her. Lorraine, if you're listening, she's definitely not listening. Um, I, it's oh, just what I was told. She might. <laughs> Maybe. I'm a big fan of hers. 
Um, But it, it was awesome. So that's, you know, for me, like I love things that change perception. I love activism. Um, and so that's what I mean by punk rock and progress. Brilliant, brilliant. Which, well, I wonder if I can uh, spin this off the back of the punk rock thing because um, we we have something in common. We because uh, we want to start talking about some of the uh, the bigger projects that you've worked on, and um, we've we've both uh, worked uh, or been involved with Virgin in our lifetimes. And um, and I must admit that's kind of I was so excited when I you know I was lucky enough to work with Virgin back in the day. And, and my main purpose was helping them deliver and activate their headline sponsorship of V-Festival. And to your point, what was, what was so exciting, and, and I was very fortunate, they ended up setting me up in business and asking me to run my own agency and, and kind of work with them. And I, I think I worked for Virgin for 17 years. And their whole original man, yeah, that's what was so cool about their brand, wasn't it? It's like, you know, they if they could do something different, they would. And, and I always quote the most amazing thing about being set up in business for them was their procurement department. And then because they had to make sure that, you know, I was it was a legitimate business, everything like that, they purposely said, you also need to ensure that you now find different clients and build this agency out. And that kind of situation never happened to me again. That was fantastic to see. So, yeah, so, and and I think, you know, and, and what's I'd love to hear because what was kind of sad, you know, I think we can say this, was I went through, God, five reorganizations, five buyer, you know, the Virgin brand kept on being purchased and purchased. And the whole reason people bought the Virgin brand was because of what it stood for and what it meant. But every time it got bought, a little bit of that Virgin got taken away and taken away. You know, people that lived and breathed Virgin were replaced for corporate people and stuff like that. So what was, you know, you you were involved in some of the the later transformation uh, well after I'd kind of left. What was that like? Well, my... You got to work on Virgin when Virgin was just sort of automatically, naturally, um, what we later called Red Hot when we were trying to bring Red Hot back yeah. to Virgin Media. Um, yeah. I my my story is um, my story of Virgin transformation is is slightly different because I started working at BBH on the Virgin Media account. I think around two thousand and fourteen. And at that time, uh, Virgin had recently, Virgin Media had recently been acquired by Liberty Global and um, the broadband race to um, deliver faster and faster and faster megabits per second and to capture the uh, bundled pay TV broadband um, market in the UK was really, really hot. And Sky was the biggest advertising spender in the whole of the UK at the time and outspent Virgin by two for one. And so um, I took over an account that creatives didn't want to work on. Um, The wide perception and the truth was that we were in a race to the bottom with uh, feature-based and price point-based marketing and that consumers really struggled to understand the language around the ball brand packages that they were buying at all or the differentiation in, in pay TV when everyone had been so volume based. Um, 
because of uh, wanting to say that there was like a certain number of channels, but then like the number of channels became slightly meaningless because people were putting a lot of not that good channels into the packages. And so um, we were talking in abstract numbers on both sides. You know, it was like 80 megabits per second, 100 megabits per second, 150 megabits per second, 362 channels, 365 channels. And consumers were just like, oh my God, it's so complicated. Um, mm. And all of our advertising looked exactly the same. And so I was part of this incredible transformation of the marketing of uh, Virgin Media. It was a three-year transformation. And it's actually IPA Effectiveness Award winning what we did in the end. Um, and we were able to prove that we drove $633 million of incremental net revenue from marketing. And we drove the ROMI up from, I think it was £1.62 to £2.40 during that period in time as well. So just completely um, extraordinary transformation. But the way that we did it, was by doing some really interesting journey work that showed us that when people come into the market, they make a shortlist of brands. And if you're not on that shortlist, your likelihood of converting is basically not there. And I think it was 40% of customers were automatically shortlisting Sky and no one else. And that that was because of the perception of superiority and scale. So Sky was spending their way into having a stronger brand because they felt like the biggest brand. And in the world of broadband, that gave people the reassurance. The big brands aren't going to break. That was the perception. Mm. Virgin had a very superior right. product, but um, and they wanted us to bring it to market. And the product was called Doxis 3 Technology. Now, can you imagine trying to tell <coughs> Uh, that would look great on a billboard <laughs> why um and and so instead you know we said look we have to cheat the market we have to outspend we have to create the perception of scale we also were able to show that like people were making that decision with their heart not their head because they were so bamboozled by the rational promises that um they'd become meaningless um but that premium credentials would be able to get us there and so our, our solution we sort of looked at like what are the levers we can pull what can we do the first thing was we should just bring back virginness to this brand we've we like the use of red had just gone down over time and we went and we spoke even though um we were no longer owned by virgin we went and spoke to virgin hq and um they told us that the Virgin brand um, was considered to have the highest premium credentials and the highest affinity of any other brand in the UK, even more than John Lewis. And for British people listening to this, that's a really big deal, especially um, back then, you know, almost 10 years ago. And yeah. so we brought back this idea of Virgin Red Hot and we made these really sort of irreverent brand campaigns. Um, one of them... We, we actually sort of borrowed from an iPhone trope. So we did visualize Doxis 3 technology, but we did it through visualizing it, not through naming it. And so we made these sort of very big red out of home posters with the big cable visualized and made to look like a premium piece of technology because it is, you know, the other cables that go to your street, these tiny little wires, they actually break. Um, when you look at these tiny little wires and think about the fact that like, 
70 people's bandwidth has to come through them. You're like, well, it makes sense that it's kind of not great during peak streaming hours. So we visualize these big cables using sort of an iPhone uh, technique. But then we had headlines like, this cable can make you laugh. You know, we did like tube advertising. Um, there was a hook and then you'd follow up and you'd read it and it would bring a smile. And it was a bit like, you know, Virgin has a long history of doing that. Famously, there's that out of home campaign that said, BA doesn't give a shiatsu. Um, you know, about oh, their massage. When they flew the airship over the uh, London Eye and said the uh, British Airways can't get it up. <laughs> yes, and actually I'm, I'm like semi-ashamed to say we also made similar jokes. So we did at one point show the two cables in comparison and the BT and Sky one was kind of floppy and then ours, ours was not floppy. Like, it's not the kind of, of marketing that I really... Doesn't really speak to like changing gender norms or any of the other stuff that no, I care about. Really. Um, yeah, we 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 uh, made a dick joke in our home advertising. We did, um, and we also made this incredible film with Usain Bolt um, about what it feels like to be the fastest. And it was in the run up to the Olympics, but he'd been our long term brand ambassador, and everyone was obsessed with his race. Um, and his record-breaking time, which was 9.58 seconds, the ad is just an homage to him, his life, and 9.58 seconds. And when you watch it, you really feel the speed. Um, you know, it's more like a sort of music video, almost like spoken word poetry, honestly, um, listening to it back. Yeah. And it, people thought that it was an Olympic ad. It really outpunched its share of spend. You know, coming back to Sky was out spending us by two for one. But the recognition of that ad versus Sky ads, like we totally punched into this different weight class and um, elevated the perception both of us as being a big brand, us as being the fastest brand, but through feeling, and then um, elevated our technology credentials, but not by not by engaging in a feature war, by making us look like we were the premium brand because of being this virgin, irreverent, funny, red hot brand. Um, and, you know, we shift the marketing spend split um, in line with that too and drove a, a complete shift from being very heavily weighted in direct response to being much more weighted in brand still with this lower spend with lower direct response and just prove that brand drives performance because um, we've got all of the attribution data and it's in that IPA effectiveness report. But it was great because it was a brand transformation. It was a marketing transformation. Um, and really importantly, it was a kind of a cultural transformation on the account in the agency at the time because yeah. by the time we were making that Usain Bolt ad, it was like the ad, the work that creatives wanted to work on from having been mm. like do not come near with me with a virgin media brief um I know. and so yeah it was you know my i guess my first foray into like proper leadership too uh, in that regard and and so great because like you said that that's just a such a pure story about getting back to the basics of what the brand is all about and getting that story back out there um rather than just you know ramming down the product features and and all of that which and and what better brand to do it on because that's what you know virgin they kind of they wrote the book didn't they um uh, well especially yeah. in the uk well and you know their global recognition so after that kind of you then very you few UK brands actually kind of made it it's a bit like the no. music industry you know like harry yeah. styles and everyone else 
No, and it's so nice to see because because it's like you know even and you can see it now coming across their other brands as well. It's like you know the Virgin Liners seems to have really kicked off. Um, I, yeah, I was actually personally pleased because I lost faith in Virgin Atlantic for a while and uh, and jumped ship and started flying Norwegian um, for quite some time, mainly from a cost point of view. But then, I, you know, kind of I don't know what happened, but you know. The last three years, you've you've seen Atlantic get really back to what they were all about. You know, fantastic service, great experience on the plane, and and you know it's a, and a premium price as well, but it's worth paying for mm. because that's kind of what they stand for. So, God, after having that fantastic experience, you then you then took you know we're, we're summarizing here quite a lot, but um, uh, the the transatlantic leap uh, to come to the US, um, what created that and kind of you know how was that navigating that kind of big leap yeah absolutely i I'd, I'd always wanted to work in the american market and that was really driven by what i was saying at the beginning about wanting to work at uh, at scale to change media um because obviously the u.s market is so much bigger than the uk market and so if you want to try and drive equality into media globally, you know, more global accounts are, are based out here and um, mm. the opportunity to work at scale. So I'd made that really clear. Um, I was doing a lot of uh, equality and diversity work at BBH. And so I got to know Sarah Watson, um, who was our global CSO. And she asked me if I could come out and support the agency while she was uh, on maternity leave. So that was how I came out. Um, but she was very clear, you know, maternity leave is not that long in the US. And so um, when she came back, it would be unlikely that they'd be able to keep me on. And she basically gave me permission to interview. And so that was how I met uh, Crystal Ricks at BBDO. And I just thought that she was so inspirational and um, also had you know quite a strong and brave point of view. And they were about to start a project uh, called Future Agency, which was about transforming the agency model for the modern day and thinking about how we integrate different strategic um, strategic offerings to drive kind of through the line briefs and um, to be very effective. And so lots of different work streams came out of that. Um, but uh, the, the global Ford pitch landed in Omnicom um, at that time and given that I was working on transformation projects and they wanted to transform model I uh, raised my hand and it was the obvious um, answer for me to think about agency-wide transformation especially given that there was a kind of holding company Omnicom-wide um, mm. aspect to that brief uh, live by being strategy lead on the global Ford pitch. Uh, it was the biggest pitch in advertising history at the time um, and written about in Forbes and the Wall Street Journal. And um, there was a just so many sort of rumors and paranoia around um, which agencies were spying on who. And um, I remember being sort of seconded in a hotel in Detroit and seeing Martin Sorrell in the elevator <laughs> Like the doors opening and him pressing the close button and it going down and me being like, oh, we're both here. Um, it was <laughs> it was really wild. It was like if you wanted to write a a sort of sitcom slash thriller drama about 
uh, the ad industry, you would have done well to follow us around at that point. Um, and so it was, I think, a nine month pitch and it was for a completely transformed operating model, talent model, global brand, measurement model um, and strategy and specifically a strategy in EVs, a strategy in mobility, um, an answer to at the time, um, it was Jim Hackett, who was the CEO, and he had this very aspirational and future-facing vision for Ford of smart vehicles in a smart world that I actually think was a little bit, it was uh, too, too before its time for the company because it wasn't a good articulation of where the company was at at the time. So I think that I learned a lot about how when you're doing central positioning and central strategy for a company, if it's going to be aspirational, you have to make sure that it can meet the, the employees mm. and particularly the employees who are building product um, at where they are and be you know, a translating function into all of the steps that you might want to take to be future facing. But it was a little too future facing, but in a pitch landscape, you, you know, anything is possible. Um, sure. And we won. And so then I became the EVP global head of strategy on the Ford business and um, flew, flew around the world, establishing the global strategy team and teaching this new operating model and um, leading the launch of the Marquee Mustang crossover um, that was led out of my North American team and, um, and also the Ranger in Thailand um, and South America. Wow, that's that's monumental. And, and well, just on how did you, you know, what were the personal challenges around that? How 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 was that? You know, it sounds this is a, a fantastic kind of career journey, but what did that mean personally? You know, were there sacrifices? You know, did you have any time? <laughs> you didn't question, Mike. Thank you. Um, yeah. <laughs> Um, no, I, I love that. I think it's really important to be really honest about that because I, I, uh, I always wanted, you know, when you're young, you want a job with global travel. It just sounds so glamorous. Um, and the truth is, like, yeah, I flew business on an Emirates flight and they give you loads of really cool free stuff. But if you haven't yeah. slept for four days, you don't <laughs> care at all. Um, no. I remember you know, some of the travel would be like 36 hours between New York and Thailand with a stopover in Hong Kong. Um, I stopped over, I, I stopped over in Tokyo twice, but couldn't leave the airport. And once it was when the cherry blossoms were in bloom and I saw them from the plane. I still haven't been to oh. Japan because it was um, right before COVID. And so I just haven't you know, made it to all of these places to actually get there and enjoy them. It sounds really yeah. glamorous. It, the truth is it's really hard. It's really hard on your body um, yeah. that much flying. It's just not natural. And I really think that um, we need to think, I mean, I hope that agencies are thinking differently about global travel now. The importance of being in person. I mean, for me, I think that building trust with um, the strategy teams around the world was really important. Building trust with the clients because um, it was where I learned the most about centralizing a, a global I, 
what standardizing a global idea, but being able to deploy it in a way with like true authenticity in the markets. And I actually built a bespoke strategic model working with Interbrand. I had some Interbrand people embedded within my team um, where we looked at the different brand strength indicators for Ford globally. But then we flew around the world and we would workshop with the client base. We'd ask them to think about different data inputs before and either give them to us or bring them to the meeting. And they would give us a much more bespoke sense of where they were strong and where they were weak according to specific brand factors. So then when you took a central global idea, we would nuance it based on like where Ford was strong or where Ford was weak. Because for example, in some markets, we had really strong heritage. You have to lean on that. Like my virgin mm. story just shows in other markets we had no heritage and so there's more permission to do something really reverent and really cool and you don't want to waylay that marketing campaign when they're going to get to do their own execution with heritage that is irrelevant in the market but you can work off the same global idea if you're rooting your global idea in like fundamental universal human truths you can maybe nuance the the category positioning and so this sort of like global local flex and really learning how to not show up as the global strategic leader as a command and control you will follow my new and the list of new was very long you will follow my new operating model talent strategy new people were introducing measurement model you know if you're trying to introduce that much net new stuff how you show up like the most flexibility and the most humility is very important. And so I do believe, coming back to the global travel thing, that meeting people in person once is really, really important. And then demonstrating deep trust in the regional team, really letting them lead. That's how they trust you. That's how a global idea actually gets executed in market. That's how global measurement actually gets listened to. Because if they trust you and you trust them, then they'll do it in their own way. That's the other thing about trust and leadership. You Trust needs to not be premised on people doing things the way you would do them. You need to be open to learning how they do them their way. And I know that that sounds... Yeah, like I, I, sorry, I'm, I'm laughing because, again, that, that is a personal thing of mine was... You know, trying to learn how to grow an age, you know, like uh, uh, being in the event industry, <clears throat> it, like you said, from the outside is incredibly sexy, but it's supposed to be like the top three most stressful jobs in the world, especially when you're doing like, you know, full scale headline sponsorships of music festivals and things like that. But also the, the thing I had to learn, and it took a really long time, is that letting go it's it's such mm -hmm. a and i i can remember, and I've, I've had so many conversations um with people's personal developments with that shift from management to direct to director as well about you know the difference between you know delegating and dumping on people the and and that that element of trust is it's like yes you know, share your ideas with people or your direction with people but you've got to you've got to allow them to be able to take it and do with it what they want. And actually it, it, it relates to a really interest, a couple of really interesting conversations I've had on some previous conversations about the change in brand marketing. You know, I, I've, I, you know, I had some really interesting things like we did a, I won't say the brand, but I did a, did a concert for a big brand and we were going to do a live stream. You know, I persuaded them to do a live stream. But they uh, they said to me, "Oh, we're not going to market it because uh, we're, what happens if it goes wrong?" 
And I'm like, well, if you don't market it, it's going to go wrong anyway, because nobody's going to watch it. Or a classic one of, uh, I, I designed a, a, I know, I designed a, uh, a, um, a live band um, for a student union tour. We we're going to do 22 student union tours. And it was dancers and it's a reggaeton band. And um, <clears throat> the, the band, the artists and the dancers got so behind it, they started sharing what they were doing behind the scenes and their own dance moves. And the brand manager like was like, you need to stop them. And I'm like, why? This is amazing. And he was like, but they're, they're changing our dance routine. They're, they're playing with the music. You know, what about the brand? What about the brand? And I was like, no, this is, this is exactly, and fair enough, you know, that was 15 years ago. But, <clears throat> but this whole, and, and it applies to, we do a lot in technology as well. And uh, I, I interviewed Dr. Alex, who's uh, um, she does a Radio Six show on called the Digital Human, and she said the biggest thing about businesses and technology and brands and technology, and social media means a lot right now, is you've got to be willing to once you create something, let it go and see how it expands out, and that's a really really hard thing to do, both personally within the workplace and gosh, with your with the clients that you're representing, the work that you're delivering. But it, it's it's the number one agenda point really now, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, um, totally. And I think that brand people have a tendency to conflate the brand with their own sense of wanting to be in control of things. And it, it, if you're in a brand vertical, you have to be so careful about when you're actually talking about the brand and the guidelines and when you're talking about... Um, not wanting to not be in control. Yeah. So then finally, you've now, <clears throat> you, uh, you've ended up here in San Francisco on the West Coast uh, with EA Sports, a totally different type of transformation, a, a very successful business, um, but in, in the scale of Ford, a very young business. And, uh, and yeah, you, you've come in and, and done a totally different type of transformation again, haven't you? Yeah. Yeah, that has been the most, um, I guess, steep incline of, of a journey. Uh, so I I actually took a, I took the phone call about um, being the head of brand transformation, well, about a role called head of brand transformation at EA um, to, to try and sort of give some give some advice or say how I would approach it or recommend some talent um, because I was introduced through my husband actually. Um, and I didn't think that that would be the job for me. I didn't think that I would work in the gaming industry. I love the entertainment industry. And so there's, I didn't think I wouldn't, but it wasn't what I was pursuing. Um, and, but the reason why I didn't think that I was going to take the job was because it was for somebody to be almost like a single person consultant within the business to consult on brand transformation. That's how the job description read. And so I went in, took the meeting and, and spoke with the head of marketing and said, look, um, I think that you're going to need a brand team because it sounds like you don't have a brand team and it sounds like you don't have a central brand strategy um and that brand strategy you know a lot of this brief is about storytelling but you can't just ladder up stories into a strategy you also have to be clear about what the objectives of that strategy are and so i really like the model of brand valuation 
Um, and this is what a brand valuation is. And anyway, long story short, I ended up accidentally advising my way into saying yes to doing this job. And I started in 2020 with no team and no budget and no clear remit. Um, and, you know, limited buy-in from um, the executive stakeholders at the time. I think they were probably just letting the head of marketing see what this brand thing could be and see whether it could add some value. Um, and I, I started three weeks before COVID shutdown happened. I was about to say, and during, and just as yeah. the pandemic hit as well. <laughs> so talking about the importance of face-to-face -face and then it just gets taken away from you. <laughs> yes, actually, that was a really steep change as well. But there was an opportunity in it, you know, never waste a crisis is, is something that we, um, that I've often said. And so I called my boss and I said, look, it seems like we should probably do a brand response. And he said, oh my goodness, like my phone's blowing up from people in the business um, asking about whether we can give something away for free and, you know, all of these other brands are giving things away for free. Um, and, you know, we talked about it and we said, well, you know, potentially that's not going to be the strongest brand move. And we also talked about the fact that a lot of the things that we could be giving away for free are pay gated. And so that can look like you're bringing people into your ecosystem in a self-interested way. And so anyway, I said, look, why don't I write a brief and why don't I write a brief that's kind of player first and takes a con consumer mindset on what the business can do in a moment like this. And I wrote a brief around you know, staying home and playing together and um, the things that our business could do that would be unique and distinctive to us and not just generic um, category, but us specifically. And I also quickly spoke, huddled with the leaders and the franchises to hear, like, what do you guys think you might do? And so took, taking the best of their ideas, you know, remember, I'm a net new leader. No one knows me. My ability to show up and say, this is what we're all going to do in a moment like this wasn't there and wouldn't have gone down well. And so I, I spoke to people who were like leading the FIFA brand they were like we're going to try and do this thing where we're going to try and bring back matches that would be taking place in the real world by getting the people who would be playing in the matches to play FIFA so not esports players but the people who people were expecting to see on the pitch uh, to be playing the games and I was like hey great like bringing back things that people miss in the real world that only we can bring back great that's one criteria we had three criteria like bringing our players to connect together in ways that are unique to us and our games, bringing back things that would otherwise be happening in the real world and um, bringing people closer to our talent and the developers because we also had you know, a group of developers that are suddenly going home. They don't have access to the stuff that they need to make and design games. Obviously that was a problem that we then started to work through solutions for, for our business because the demand for gaming went through the roof. But we ran this campaign and Bearing in mind, there was also no central brand identity at that point. Um, yeah. I very quickly pulled together like some rudimentary branding with like, one of the senior designers in the business. And we went, okay, great. The, this is the brief. We pushed it to all of marketing, all of the brand leaders. It went into the studios. Um, here's the spreadsheet. Put your ideas in here. We'll have a huddle and we'll review them. We, we had like a stand-up model. I was, you know, I'm a horrible project manager. I didn't have a project manager, so I had to do that. So I was like, stand up, a spreadsheet. I don't know. Um, 
And we gave people the badging and branding elements and we put it in the brand tracker. I remembered to do that because my agency training um, meant that I, I remember to do that even in the moment of crisis. And we could really quickly see that people recognize the campaign. They recognize it across the franchises. And for people who recognized it, sentiment towards EA, the master brand, which is also the most hated brand in the company because of the reputational challenges that we've had historically, sentiment went up 20% for people who recognized the campaigns and the recognition was high. And that meant that I went into this like very steep education curve with a business that is 40 years old, but hasn't ever really had central brand or a central brand team. And I could immediately say, here's an example of the kind of value you can get when you're able to coordinate and show up to players in moments of crisis or show up to players with, with consistency. And this is what a visual identity system could do because look, that recognition is driving this result. And we know that we want to try and maintain the same audience level post COVID, which has been a challenge for gaming broadly. Um, and so what if we can maintain the sentiment and therefore do that? And that, unlocked for me the ability to do what I did in the last three years, which is to establish the brand strategy vertical, brand valuation, showing how much our brand contributes to the company's bottom line, the levers that will increase it over time. So that's how I set up my strategy team to drive those levers. That went into brand architecture strategy, brand identity. We did the identity in three different sequences because the other thing that we really, when you're driving is transformation that's so steep, you need to give people tangible early things. You need to be prepared to be scrappy and put things out at pilot and go, this is 1.0. I think we ended up with like 4.0 of different brand refreshes so that we could put something out, prove it out, test it, do it, scale it. Um, and we established brand marketing, did a big channel consolidation, told cross-franchise stories to players for the first time. Um, just did a big campaign around BFFs, celebrating people who met in our games, who'd never met in the real world and bringing them together and doing these little mini documentaries about the true oh, friendship. Um, and it's just been, it's been really wonderful to have the opportunity to bring back to life a 40 year old brand that was actually founded on these really amazing premises that gaming developers of the next artists of our era and that gaming is good for you and wakes up your brain and being able to really bring that to life um for the first time and grow and build a team a diverse and wonderful team of marketers to do it um and then you know inform the esg strategy of the company we brought purpose in as the brand strategy but it's not an empty purpose statement our purpose is that ea exists to expand the positive power of play those three pillars were initially built off the products that we were making today and how they were going to drive more diverse players into our games through driving more diverse representation into our games and uh, to make sure that our purpose would be true. At the same time as we were writing that purpose statement, we were supporting the business and making the investment case to create a positive play team whose sole role it is to scale our anti-toxicity and harassment products across franchises, as well as the positive contributions we're making. So things like we've uh, published an accessibility patent pledge that says that whenever we make headway 
in uh, accessible play and gaming, we open up that code and other developers are able to use that code. So we never kind of hoard the innovation that we make for good. Um, that's just one example of something that comes out of that team. But this isn't like roll your eyes, like always brand purpose real or not, when we were able to put a product team in to do that work. But yeah, it's also amazing. You know, applied more broadly. And over quite a short amount of time as well. <laughs> yes. <clears throat> oh, me, sorry. But isn't that, that's just uh, because um, we've, unfortunately, I've got to start wrapping up. I've got one more question, but just quickly on that. Do you, do you think you've just talked about the speed to, of which you had to do it and the, the whole test and learn approach? And that's something I've been seeing quite a lot now. It, it, it was also something I felt was really uh, reborn or born out of the pandemic because pre-pandemic there was there was this you know I, I did a fantastic podcast because um, of the speaker uh, about transformation with Adobe and we were talking about how we are incessantly our creativity is taken away from us year on year from like the age of seven and uh, and it's like the way you know, education is set up the way corporate structures are set up. It's actually destroying creativity. Um, and what I got excited about during the pandemic was so much of that got removed because there was just this need to figure out what to happen. A lot of things. And it was like, test and learn. Let, let's get things out. Let's see. And, and for me, and my question is, you know, do you see that as something that is that is now transforming brand building because it's allowing businesses and brands to be a lot more open with their customers and their audiences? Is is that something that you see as well? Oh, that's really interesting. I think I think that we had there are some things that are reversing from the pandemic that I think are really unfortunate. So I think that we had a lot more um, captive audience share of attention. People were spending more time. They wanted um, things that could give them new experiences, you know, once they were getting bored of the experiences that they were able to have from their homes. And so, um, you know, it's why like a brand like Masterclass did so well in that environment. Um, and you know, it's why gaming did well too. I think that, um, consumers are wanting to go outside more. It's a big narrative around why, um, the, the number of active users in gaming has gone down, which has been a challenge industry-wide in the last quarter. Um, but I, I also think that, um, increasingly the power in like creating and connecting is kind of being pulled away from from big companies now, i'm really interested in the um creator economy and i know that there's so much buzz around the creator economy and then with the market um headwinds being the way they are a lot of investments being pulled back but um you know there are big funds that are premised on the idea of paying creators for the work that they do and like one-to-one -one payments so like patreon is a really interesting company where people are able to pay the people that they want to get something from in some shape or form directly. And I was talking to my mother-in-law about this the other day because she follows lots of knitters on Patreon and gets their patterns 
and like the amount of niches that that's been split into, I think, mm. um, is a product of it being led by people and it being more one-to-one. So I think mm. brands will increasingly struggle to compete in that environment. It requires us to do two things. One, to continue to be scrappy and to pilot and to put things out. But two, to um, be continue to be a magnet for creative people because as creative solvency doesn't necessarily depend on a relationship between a creator and your company and they can go and make money themselves or make more money on platforms in a different way we need to rethink our business models and we actually just saw that from bringing a gaming industry lens in really quickly like in the game developer conference which is like the big industry conference that happened in san francisco last week um everyone is talking about Epic's attempt to compete with Roblox, but they made this announcement that they're going to be giving, I think it was like $450 million, no, 450% of their net revenue, they're going to start giving to creators within their platform. And that's a really, really big deal. Like that's a company that has the edge in gaming in the way that they are building out their engine. So they have an engine Mm. edge and Roblox because it was built on creators creating their own stuff. They have a creator edge and Epic is going, we need a creator. That is a huge announcement. Um, And there are a lot of companies that aren't making those announcements. So for me, the answer to your question kind of lies in a shift happened in, in COVID. I think that it started to put the power more in the hands of the creators. You know, we, after the music industry really disrupted it and stopped creators from getting paid what they were, the pendulum swinging back in the other direction. How brands are going to keep up? I think that's going to be the big question. Um, and for me, that was the big shift in COVID. Yeah, no, good. Thank you. Well, look, it's been fantastic. I think I'm gonna, uh, we're gonna have to wrap it up, although um, uh, I could have carried this conversation on. So, it, really fascinating stories, uh, both from personal transformation to three very different kind of brand transformations, which is fantastic. So, what would what advice would you give to a young marketeer trying to navigate this kind of constantly evolving world? Because it is, it is constant. You never know what's going to happen from one week to the other, or, or even kind of what legacy, let's get deeper meaningful for a second, what legacy uh, do you hope to kind of start having or portraying? Yeah, well, I think, um, you know, the, the biggest, my, my, uh, my mentor at BBH, Nigel Bogle, his best advice he ever gave me was cut off your weaknesses and play to your strengths. And it's really kind of countercultural to the education system that we're all growing up in, which encourages us to go really broad and to like think about what you're bad at and fixate on it. And actually marginalized people and women are more likely to fixate on the things that they think they're bad at. They're also more likely to be told that they are bad at lots of things. And so focusing on what you love doing and what you're good at is really important advice to give to young people. Like if you're not good at maths, that is fine. Like you probably need to just scrape it past your GCSEs and then it's fine because ultimately finding what you love doing and ruling out the other possibilities as quickly as possible, that's what's going to help you accelerate in your career faster than anything else. And people don't tell you that. The other thing is, um, you know, working out what your limiting beliefs are and throwing them off. I often speak to people who say, 
well, you know, I've, this promotion is inevitable. I just need to sit in the role for two years. I just need to sit in the role for three. You don't know that. And what's stopping you from going and chasing it in your company or chasing it somewhere else? Um, you know, the, there is a lot of limiting beliefs around the idea that the industry is really small and that you um, shouldn't make enemies. And, you know, I don't set out to make enemies, but I don't tolerate injustice. And I've been okay. My path isn't the easiest path, but it has been a path and it will continue to be a path. And so coming to coming back to your legacy question, you know, I want to show that you can you can lead in a different way. You can show up and be radical. You can care about the things that I care about and you can still be successful. And I say that knowing that I am a privileged white woman. I carry a lot of privilege and not everybody has that, but I'm opening the door for other people. I want to give other people a platform and I just want to model a different way of doing things that I hope is available to anybody who wants to both stay in corporate business and have a radical voice and have a radical point of view and be part of changing that culture and reimagining capitalism. And if you're out there and you're listening to this and you want to be part of the charge, contact me. Let's let's team up. Let's do it together. We'll start a conspiracy or something. <laughs> let's do it. That sounds brilliant. Um, El, that was amazing. Um, I've, as usual, I knew I was going to be inspired and, and learned something and I certainly did and uh, and I think that's a fantastic rally cry at the end we we might have to just make our own little edit of that and, and put it out for you <laughs> um okay. thanks very much really pleased to have you and hopefully speak to you soon yeah thank you so much Mike I really enjoyed it so that's another wrap another show done thanks so much for joining us I hope you find found that show as insightful and as enjoyable as I did If you did, then please like and share. And if you want to know more about forthcoming events and shows, please register for our platform, Lively Fresh Takes. See you next time. Bye-bye.